Good morning, Evergreen SUV. Uh, I'm glad to have this opportunity to just come before you and open God's word and hopefully draw our hearts to him. For those of you guys who don't know who I am, uh, my name is David Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at this church. Um, and before we begin, I just wanted us to take some time to pray. Um, and rather than me praying for you guys, I would like you to pray for yourself. And so um, just take a moment. I want you to consider maybe what is heaviest on your heart right now. Maybe what's occupying a lot of your mind and your thoughts. Perhaps it's a need. Perhaps it's an emotion that you're feeling. Maybe you're just frustrated, sad. Maybe you're overwhelmed with joy. Whatever it might be, I want us to just take a moment um, and just bring before the Lord what is heaviest in our heart. And I'll close for us, okay? And so why don't we just take this moment right now. And so, Father God, we come to you because you are a God who comes to us. May you hear not just our prayers, but what is heaviest on our heart. And meet us where we're at. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, just a few things to get out of the way, just so um, there's no confusion. Uh, one, I'm sick, and so if you hear me coughing, if you see me blowing my nose, if you see me drinking a lot, then uh, I apologize. Um, number two, um, I read from a translation that most people don't have, and so it's a little weird. It's called HCSB. Uh, it doesn't really exist anymore, but you guys can find it on your phones if you guys want to follow, so that's HCSB. And lastly, maybe what is the most important thing is that you guys might notice I have a beard, okay? <laughs> Um, I've been growing this beard for five months. Thank you for whoever applauded. Um, uh, I've been growing this beard for about five months, and, and, and many people ask me all the time, David, why are you growing out your beard? Okay, and so I'll just answer that question with a, a short anecdote first, okay? So a few months ago, um, I, I recently made a friend, and uh, he goes to the St. Gabriel Mosque, and he's a Muslim. And so it was about the time I just started growing out my beard. And he asked me, he's like, David, why are you growing out your beard? Is it like for religious reasons? I was like, no, not really. Um, why? Is it something for you guys? He's like, sort of. Uh, the imam at our, at our mosque and a lot of the older men, they tend to like to grow beards. And I was like, why? He's like, well, sort of uh, to show sort of respect and honor uh, to the Prophet Muhammad and other prophets and their forefathers and so forth. And so many men in the mosque grow beards. And it's seen as a good thing there. I told him it sort of has the exact opposite uh, uh, effect at my church because ever since I started growing up my beard, people just keep complaining to me. Okay? And so... Um, why am I growing out my beard? Just because I want to, okay? Hopefully that should be a good enough answer for most of you. Um, with that, uh, I, I want us to sort of uh, just take a moment, and I'm going to share another story with you, and this one's actually going to tie into the message. Um, 
And so a few years back, a few years back, um, I found myself uh, attending a couple of AA meetings. For those of you guys who don't know uh, what AA meetings are, it's short for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it's a place where people are looking for community to help them right, uh, battle their addiction with alcohol. And so many people who are there are, are really looking to find victory over um, their addiction. And, and I wasn't there particularly for that reason. I was there mostly to observe. You see, I was attending seminary at the time, and it was suggested that we observe these sort of support groups. And so I went. I had no idea what I was expecting. Um, never been to a support group meeting before. Uh, but quickly after sitting in the first session, it, it, I noticed that people really, uh, most people really loved being there. They found it a very helpful place, and it was very clear that it had helped some people find victory um, over their addiction to alcohol. And people would often share the struggles, and they would even share their victories. And a part of the thing that they would also share on top of that was what step they were on. Okay, and so for those of you guys who don't know, AA sort of uh, walks the participant th through something called the 12-step program. And we're not going to go through the whole thing, but as I, as I read these 12 steps, uh, I just found it very interesting, very fascinating. And I'm going to just read the first three for us, okay? I'm going to just read the first three for us. The first one says this. The first one says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. The second one says this, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And lastly, uh, or not lastly, but sorry, the, the third step said, uh, we will make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Okay? So those are just the first three 12, uh, uh, first three steps of the 12-step program. But as I, as, I as I read these three first steps, right, as I, as I listened to them, it reminded me so much of the story of Israel. And that's where we're going to be this morning, is that we're going to be in the book of Exodus, walking with the Israelites in their journey to meet and know God. And so for those of you guys who don't know who the Israelites were, they were a group of people from the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and over time, they, they migrated over to Egypt where they would live for 400 years or so. And those 400 years or so were not very good years for them. You see, the Israelites were found to be in captivity in Egypt. They were slaves. They were laborers. They were working under horrific conditions, so much so that they would cry out. They would cry out to the Lord, and even Exodus 2 tells us that when the people of Israel groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, their cry for help ascended to God because of their difficult labor, and God had heard their groaning. And to me, this sort of echoes those first three steps. The first step is that the Israelites begin to recognize that they are powerless to save themselves from Pharaoh and the grip that Egypt has over them. The second one is that they begin to move and believe 
that God is a power greater than themselves that could actually deliver them. And then the third step was that the Israelites eventually come to a point where they have to make a decision, where they have to make a decision to hand over their wills and their lives to the care of the Lord. They have to trust him. And step three is where we find ourselves at a, at a very famous site, and maybe many of you guys know it, but it's called Mount Sinai. You see, once the Israelites escaped Egypt, once God delivered them from Egypt, they traveled a good distance and they found themselves at a mountain. And it was at, at that mountain where God would meet his people, the Israelites, and where he would desire for them to commit to him as he is committing to them. And that's one of the themes that you're, you would read or see throughout the book of Exodus is that God desires to reveal himself to his people. He reveals himself to Moses. He reveals himself to Pharaoh. He reveals himself to Egypt. And especially he reveals himself to the Israelites. And you'll read that throughout the book of Exodus, God does things differently because he really wants his people to know him. And so that's where we find ourselves at Mount Sinai. That's where we find ourselves having this momentous scene where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And so I'm going to ask us all to rise at this point, and we're just going to read two verses together from Exodus chapter 2. Oh, sorry, I apologize. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 2. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Father, would you help us to know that you are our Lord, our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may please be seated. And so here is a very interesting scene. This comes right before God begins to give the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words to Moses and the Israelites. And God introduces himself. I'll read it in verse 2 again. It says this. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. One thing I want you guys to have in mind as we just uh, go through this morning and dive into the text is I want you guys to ask yourselves, how do you know God? You guys don't have to have an answer right now, but just consider that question for a moment. How do you know God? How do you know God? How do you know about God? How do you know who God is? Here in verse 2, God tells the Israelites I am the Lord your God. And I want you guys to look at your Bibles really quickly. It doesn't matter what translation. I want you guys to look at your Bibles really quickly at verse 2 in chapter 20 of Exodus. And notice how the word Lord is spelled or written. It looks a little different than how we would normally script things. You see, uh, I'm guessing pretty much every single one of you guys have a translation where when you read Lord in verse 2, 
it has a capital L and a capital O and a capital R and a capital D. Right? It's not L, capital L, and then the rest is lowercase. They're all in caps. And there's something special, I'm, and I'm guessing many of you guys know this, but just in case, to make sure that we're all on the same page, there's something special going on there whenever you see in your Bibles this all caps spelling of the Lord. You see here, it's not speaking about a position as if uh, um, there's like Lord Voldemort, right, from Harry Potter. Um, I didn't want to use this, but this is the only Lord that came up. There's Lord Farquaad from um, <laughs> Shrek. Um, that's, that's a bad movie. Don't watch it. Um, that's not the Lord that's being spoken here. Okay, so whenever you read your Bibles and whenever you see in your Bible, it is all capitalized, L-O-R-D. Something special is happening here. And what is happening is that God's very own name is being covered here. Okay. God's very own name is being covered here. What I mean by this is that the Israelites and the Jews, they really wanted to make sure they wouldn't get in trouble. And so they did not want to, quote unquote, take the Lord's name in vain. And so whenever the Lord's proper name would come about in the scriptures, they would replace it with their word for Lord, which is Adonai. But to help us as English readers of the Bible, most of our translations still tell us when God's proper name is being used. And so here in verse 2, it's not actually saying, I am the Lord your God. It is saying, I am Yahweh. And Yahweh is God's name, right? When I go up and introduce you to, uh, uh, myself to any of you guys, I don't say, I am a man, right? That doesn't really help you guys. It doesn't tell you who I am. I tell you my name is David, and it's nice to meet you. And here the Lord tells the Israelites, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your God, the one who delivered you and brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I am the one who cared for you, who fed you, who clothed you. I'm not Ra, right, an Egyptian god. I'm not Baal, a, a, a god of the Canaanites. I am Yahweh. God wants to make very clear to the Israelites right away who he is. He doesn't want there to be any confusion about who he is and what he has done for his people. And it's only after this, it's only after God reveals his name to these Israelites, reminds them of who he is, that he begins to move towards giving them the Ten Commandments. And I just want us to focus, or I'll just read the first two and just move on. And so the first two says this. It says, do not have other gods beside me. Okay? And the second one says this, it says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so the first commandment tells us, do not have any other gods besides me, but then the second commandment tells us, do not fashion any idol 
for yourself. And I want you guys to just remember this as we just continue throughout the story, okay? Because after this, the Lord just continues to give the rest of the commandments, and we have the commandments, right? We know four of them are, are speaking about how he wants the Israelites to, to live well with Yahweh. And then the last six refer to how God wants his people to live well with one another. And so God is very gracious to the Israelites and he continues to desire to guide them. And he does this by giving them a charter for a right relationship with him and a right relationship with one another. And after everyone hears this, Moses goes back up and Moses continues to receive uh, more laws and more stipulations for how they're to live because God wanted them to not be lost people, but to know how exactly to flourish as they went into the promised land. And I know for many of us, when we think about the law, we think of it as a negative thing. But if you look at the book of Exodus, if you read very carefully, you'll notice that the people are ecstatic. They are excited. They want to have this covenantal relationship with God. They don't want to try to figure out how to live life on their own because they know that they haven't been doing so well in the past 400 years. And so when God, when Yahweh comes and meets them and tells them, look, here is how you can live a right, in, a, in a way that is right with me and one another, the people are ecstatic. And so much so that when Moses comes down and he tells the Israelites all of this, they celebrate and they even say in verse, uh, chapter 30, 24, you don't need to turn there, but in chapter 24, they had this celebration. They say, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded us. And they set up an altar and they burn offerings and fellowship offerings. And, and some even see a glimpse of the Lord and, and, and they continue to eat and drink and celebrate. It's a wonderful occasion. And so everything is good so far. And in, in fact, you'll read the later chapters that things keep getting better. Moses goes back up to the mountains and he continues to converse with the Lord. This time, it's not so much about stipulations, though. It's about something else. God wants Moses and the Israelites to build a tent, a tabernacle. You see, God doesn't just want to enter into a relationship with the Israelites, but God wanted to be very close to them. God wanted to be in their midst. And so God had given Moses and the Israelites all these details for what is known as a tabernacle or just a giant portable tent. And, and, and he would tell Moses and the Israelites how they were to take care of themselves and how they were to take care of the tabernacle so that God could be with them. So that Yahweh, this holy God who brought them out of Egypt, could be so very close to a broken and sinful people. God wants to be with his people. And the people at this moment want to be with God. And that's sort of what happens between uh, chapters 20 to sort of uh, 31. But today we're going to move to chapter 32. And so you guys can turn there if you guys like. And I don't know if you guys know, but if you guys read a good amount of Bible stories, um, there aren't too many perfect endings when it comes to uh, people being involved. 
okay? And so even though God meets the Israelites, even though God draws near to the Israelites, even though God, Yahweh, is even going to make a living place amongst them, to be, very, uh, to be at the very heart of, the, uh, uh, of their midst, things go wrong quite quickly. You see, while Moses is on top of this mountain receiving these instructions for God to have a house amongst them, to, for God to be with them, the Israelites begin to get impatient. The Israelites are on the bottom of the mountain and they begin to wonder, why hasn't Moses come back down yet? They sort of get antsy. I imagine many of them were very excited. They just enter into this covenantal relationship with this God who they've seen is all-powerful. Right? They've seen Yahweh destroy Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They've seen Yahweh open up the Red Sea for them to cross. They've seen Yahweh provide for them food and water. And so the Israelites just want to worship Yahweh. And so let's see how that ends up. And so I'm going to just read starting in verse 1. It says this, When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. They're worried. And in verse 2 it says, Then Aaron replied to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took the gold from their hands and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and then he made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. So many of us probably are familiar with the story of a goat and calf. Um, But I want us to sort of read it a little bit differently this morning. And so what we see here is that while Moses is up on the mountain receiving instructions for them to build a place where God can dwell in their midst, the people get impatient and they want to worship the Lord on their own. They want to worship God on their own. Doesn't sound like a bad thing, right? And before we move on, I want to make sure there's, there's one thing that, that sort of uh, I clarify for us, okay? So I want us to look at verse 1 and verse 4 really quickly. Verse 1 and verse 4. In verse 1, it says, uh, this, is what Aaron's, uh, this is what the people say to Aaron. They say, come, make us a God who will go before us. Just keep that in mind. Come, make us a God who will go before us. And in verse 4, it says this. It says, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, I don't know about you guys, but many times when I've read this golden calf story before, when I've been taught it, 
Um, I've been taught it in a way where uh, these Israelites are just stupid people. Okay? These Israelites are just stupid people, and it's like, okay, they got rescued by this wonderful, powerful God, and now they're going to create a golden calf. I can't imagine the golden calf being that big. Okay, it's probably like this big, and they're going to worship this, right? And so you're thinking, okay, the Israelites are stupid. Why, why are they doing this? How foolish could they be? But I want to say that I believe we're more like the Israelites than we think. And I don't think the Israelites are that stupid. I simply think they're misinformed. Because I don't think that the Israelites are looking here to worship a different God. I believe that the Israelites in this episode are trying to worship Yahweh. And so when I told you guys to look at verse 1 and verse 4, if you guys have a translation that is either the NIV or the ESV, you'll notice that the word God is in plural. It says G-O-D-S. Okay? And so it says, come make us gods uh, who will go before us, or uh, this is, uh, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. But if you have my translation or other translations like the NASB, you'll notice that it's in the singular. It says G-O-D. It says, come, make us a God, right, who will go before us. And Israel, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I believe that it should be read in the singular. You see, in the Hebrew, the word for God is Elohim, and essentially it functions in many different ways. When you read Genesis 1 and you see the creator God in Genesis 1-1 who created the heavens and the earth, it says Elohim. At the same time, when you look at other passages, like when you see commands for the Israelites to not follow other gods of the Canaanites, it's the same word, Elohim. And so the same word that is used for the creator God is used for these other gods of the Canaanites, and so on. And so what is it saying here? I believe the Israelites are trying to worship Yahweh. They're not trying to worship other gods. They're not that stupid. They even say, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They know who brought them out of the land of Egypt. In Exodus 20, verse 1, right before the Ten Commandments, we just read, God says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. They're not confused on who they're trying to worship. But what is going on is that they're worshiping in a way that just isn't that good. You see, shortly after this, we notice in verse 7, it says this. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They bowed down to his sacrifice to it and said, Israel, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people and they are indeed a, stick a stiff necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them then I will make you into a great nation. And so what we see here is a, is a very sad thing because shortly after this episode, God gets angry. 
when the Israelites fashion this golden calf, God gets angry. But why, why is God that angry? Right? Do you guys ever think about that? Like, why is God that angry for the Israelites building a golden calf and worshiping it? I believe God is angry because he knows that their worship is tied, okay, their worship is tied to their view of God. Their worship is tied to their view of God, and their view of God is incomplete. So if you guys get anything from uh, this morning, I want us to just hear that again. I believe God is angry because God knows that their worship is tied to their view and their perception of God. You see, the Israelites, Aaron, didn't fashion this golden calf for no reason. You'll notice what's funny, uh, or what I find funny, is that later on we see sort of uh, Moses come and ask Aaron what happened. Right, when he comes back down. And Aaron sort of, I don't know why he says what he says, but he's sort of like, I don't know. It's sort of like we just threw gold in a pot and then popped out this golden calf. Right? And it's sort of ridiculous because we see, right, we see in, in, in verse 4 of chapter 32, we see it, it say very clearly that Aaron took the gold from their hands and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made it into an image of a calf. Aaron knew exactly what he was making, and he made a golden calf. Why? I think Aaron made a golden calf because that was his view. That was the Israelites' view of God. You see, a calf represented strength. A calf represented power. Consider what the Israelites had just experienced. They've seen Pharaoh and Egypt, many soldiers, many chariots, being swallowed up by water at the hands of Yahweh. They've seen food fall from the sky and water come from a rock. They know that Yahweh is powerful. And so that's what's in their minds at that point. They create this calf to represent God, the one who delivered them from Egypt because of the experiences, because their experiences of power. But the problem was is that this calf could never fully represent Yahweh. You see, what it does is that it takes Yahweh, our God, and it dumbs him down. It strips him of his majesty. It takes away his complexity and his greatness. And all we have left is just sort of this simple characteristic that is only based on our own experiences. And so the Israelites, the reason why God is angry is because they create an image of God apart from how God reveals himself. That is why when we read the first two commandments, the first one says, do not have any other gods, but the second one says, do not fashion any images, do not make any idols. He's not saying, oh, don't make any other idols of other gods. He's saying, don't make any images and idols of me. Because it will never fully reveal who I am. 
So what I'm trying to say is that when we limit our understanding of God by our own experiences, if we ignore how God reveals himself, we're going to get a subpar version of who God really is. If you guys don't believe me, let's turn to Exodus 34 really quickly. Exodus 34. After this whole golden calf fiasco, Moses begins to intercede on the Israelites' behalf, and he asks the Lord to relent his anger and disaster. And the Lord does so. And the Lord not only relents, but he continues to reveal himself to Moses. And so I'm going to read chapter 34, starting in verse 5. It says this. It says, The Lord, Yahweh, came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty and punished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. I'll read that again. It says, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You'll notice verse 8 says, right after this, Moses bowed down on the ground and worshipped. Now let me ask you this question. Um, these characteristics that you see in verses six and seven, how would you ever be able to extrapolate that from an image of a calf? Does a calf show you that he is compassionate or gracious or merciful? Does the calf show the Israelites that he is slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth? That he is one who maintains faithfulness to thousands of generations, yet at the same time does not skip by justice so that those who are in wrongdoing will find um, their end. How can a calf reveal any of these things? The, the reality is that it can't. That's why God is so angry at the Israelites for creating this image of a calf and worshiping it because it falsely represented him. It made God far smaller than he would ever be. The God who heard their cries from the very beginning in the book of Exodus to the God who has brought them all the way here and entered into a covenant with them and wants to live with them, that, can never, that God can never be portrayed and captured by simply an image. But how does this relate to us, right? How does this relate to us? We don't make idols anymore. Um, I haven't seen anybody really at our church try to create an image of a God or image of Yahweh through uh, uh, um, their jewelry or, or whatnot. Um, 
But the thing is, is that we're not that different than the Israelites. Let me, let me show you how. Let's go back to the story I shared with you in, about AA, okay? Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm going to just read the first three steps again. The first step says this. It says, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. The second step says this. It says, we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and help us. And then the third one said this, we will make a decision to turn over our will and our lives over to the care of God. That sounds wonderful so far, but it doesn't end with that in the manual. It says, to the care of God as we understood him. Make a decision to turn your will and your lives over to the care of God as they understood him. You see, I believe when I hear testimonies and when I talk to brothers and sisters in our church that many of us would quickly agree with the first statement. We recognize that we are weak. We cannot live the life that we want to live apart from God. And we need help. And many of us know God and we trust him. We want to move towards him. And many of us even want to hand over our lives to God. But my question is, are we handing our lives over to a God that we have fashioned in our own minds? Or God as he really is? You see, when I was in the AA meeting, they began to share their sort of gods. Right? Some descriptions sounded like the God of the Bible. Some sounded like a god of a different religion. But there were two people who shared that I just found were, it was just very fascinating to me. It was just sort of mind-boggling. One of them shared that their god was a door, and the other one shared that their god was a doorknob. And I was like, okay, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Right? But what I quickly realized as they continued to share is that for them, the door and the doorknob represented their access to AA and this support group, which had helped them so much. And so based upon their own experiences, they were allowed to fashion whatever the God that they wanted in their minds. And we can be just like these folks in AA. We can be just like the Israelites. Right? Rather than knowing God as who he is, as Yahweh as who he is, we often choose to merely understand and focus on how we feel and believe God to be. Right? Maybe one day we, we, we see God heal us and we keep that experience in our minds and it overwhelms us and, and it continues to shape us as, as we view God. But it, it, we come so focused on the idea that God is healer that we forget all the other things that he is. And so when we choose to frame God solely on our experiences and begin to ignore how he reveals himself to us through his word, it causes us problems. For the Israelites, you'll notice that when they begin to worship this golden calf, they do everything the same as when they had just entered into a covenant with the Lord, Yahweh. They build altars, they have a burnt offering, a fellowship offering, they eat and drink, but there's one more thing that's added onto that. You'll notice this in uh, verse 32, I mean, so chapter 32 
the end of verse 6. It says, the people sat down to eat and drink. And then it says, then they got up to play or participate in revelry. Their worship of God went beyond what it should have been. For the people at AA, for those of you guys who don't know, AA had Christian roots. That's why it's so spiritual in many senses. But you look at the state of it now, not saying it's completely useless. It has helped many people in their fight over addiction, but it does not help people know the one true God. And so for us, the question is, do we know God as he has revealed himself? Or do we only know God based upon the limitations of our experiences? Do we know God and do we search to, to, to know God as he reveals himself to us through his word? Or do we try to worship him, talk about him, even interact with him simply based on how we think God might be? Right? Maybe we think that God is just, but we forget that he is merciful. Maybe we think God is gracious, but we forget that he hates sin. Maybe we think that God is utmost, uh, in an utmost manner holy and set apart, but we forget that God was the one who wanted to create a tent to live in the midst of his people. When we forget who God really is, it doesn't just hurt God, but it hurts us. Because our version of God will never be as good as who God really is. You see, Yahweh is Yahweh. He isn't simply love or just. He isn't just righteous or merciful or powerful or humble. He isn't all these attributes evenly divided. Right? The Lord is the Lord. He's all of his characteristics all at once, all the time. And he will always be far more amazing than what we can ever make him out to be on our own. And so I want to encourage each and every single one of us here, right? The message of this title is, Who is the Lord? My hope is that our answer to who is the Lord is not shaped simply based on our own experiences and how we think God should be or is. But I hope that we might be able to know who God really is in all his splendor and majesty and greatness. My hope is that we would be able to put ourselves before God's revelation constantly and consistently so we, we would never forget how great he is. Because the moment we begin to forget to look at God face to face through his word, we will begin to walk down the slippery slope where we fill in our gaps with knowledge that we form ourselves. We begin to imagine who God might be rather than who he is. We'll take our experiences of God, but we'll forget our knowledge of him. And when we begin to just shape God based on our experiences, it leads us to this distorted view of God. And our distorted view of God is going to lead to a distorted relationship with him. And as we have a distorted relationship with God, that just harms us. So I want each and every single one of us to know God. I want each and every single one of us to see God face to face. And here is the good news. The good news is that we don't need a mountaintop experience. We don't need to have a Mount Sinai moment 
God has given us his revelation through two things. One is his word. And by God's grace, those of us who are here this morning most likely have access to this. And so we can know God. We can meet him face to face. But there's, other, there's one other way that God has revealed himself fully to us. And this is the one that I find very fascinating and very interesting. is because, like I said, the book of Exodus is about God, or one of the themes is about God always looking to show himself to his people. And God cares about this so much. He wants to draw near to his people so much that he actually ended up giving us something to look at. He actually gave us an image. That's Christ. You see, when the scriptures, uh, in the scriptures, it tells us that when we look at Christ, we are looking at Yahweh. Christ shows us the full beauty of who our God Yahweh really is. The scriptures read that he is the radiance. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He's not some fake makeshift idol. And you know that tabernacle that God wanted to build to be in the midst of Israel and the Israelites? The scripture tells us that Christ is that tabernacle in which God dwells amongst his people. So I want us to just consider how we can meet God face to face as we dive into his word, but we can also see God, Yahweh, as we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. I'm going to just read chapter 34, verse 6 and 7 once again, and I'll close this in a time of prayer. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Let's thank the Lord that he desires for us to know him and that he has made a way for that to happen. Let's come before God. Father, we... God, I just thank you, Lord, that, that you pursue us. You pursue us time and time and time again. You don't just pursue us, but you seek to show yourself to us. You hope that we might know you, to know you as a God who cares for us, who desires to be with us, Father, maybe there are some of us here this morning who don't really know you. Father, I just pray that you would just be pursuing them at this moment. Show yourself to this person through your word and through your son, Christ. And I pray that as we move towards the new year. I pray that as we set many goals for our lives, that one goal we can set is to never forget 
how great and wonderful you are. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <laughs>